Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast. Each week, your host, Casey Haston, Director of Recruiting at VIP, will bring you valuable insights from thought leaders, introduce you to incredible companies, and bring you tips for landing your dream job from our team of executive recruiters at VIP. And now, Casey Haston. Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast, a podcast devoted to adding value to your career or candidate search, brought to you by VIP. I'm your host, Casey Haston. I'm the Director of Recruiting with VIP, an executive recruiter, and your all-around hiring guru. And you know it is my purpose with this podcast to bring you top-notch professionals and experts who are gonna share their wisdom with you so you don't have to go and put in 20 years of research like they've already done, because they've done the work for you. So today is no different. On the show, I'd like to welcome Mark Murphy, Chairman and CEO of Leadership IQ. Forbes senior contributor and New York Times best-selling author. Mark is an expert in helping leaders attract and retain star performers with strong skills and positive attitudes. He's coached organizations on leadership training, employee engagement, hiring for attitude, and more to help them build a strong infrastructure and achieve long-term success. Thank you for joining us today, Mark. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so cool to be here. I'm thrilled. <laughs> You know, does it does it kind of shock you when you hear someone give an intro about you? You know, it's the the single biggest benefit. I was in years ago. I was in a bookstore, and uh, I was with my daughter, who's now seventeen. And we were in the bookstore, and the guys, he's like, "Yeah, we have your book here," and he's like, "It's." It's not as big a seller as Lady Gaga, but it's like, it still sells pretty well. My daughter's like, he said you in the same sentence as Lady Gaga. And so like, honestly, that was, is when I got that, it's like, all right, that's, if I can get in the same sentence, like, yes, I'm, you know, a hundred tears down from Lady Gaga. But if I get in the same sentence, then, you know, all right, that's, that's good enough. I'm, I can live with that. Especially in front of your daughter. Well, that was the whole thing. Like in front of just me, like a, what I, I know where I stand relative to Lady Gaga. But in her mind, the fact that they were in the same sentence, I was like, all right, that's that's cool. That's, I can live it up. That's huge. Um, <laughs> so, so I always like to start the show to let our audience know how we got connected. And so I'm curious, do you remember how we got connected? It's a test. <sighs> So I, I believe you had read an article I wrote in Forbes about the need for writing down goals and the kind of neurological mechanisms, why writing down your goals was so powerful. And I think that was the, when you read that article, that was when you pinged me and said, hey, I want to talk further. That is absolutely right. And the point that I wanna make, and I wanna dig a little bit deeper into that before we get into our other content today, is that you've got to, like my mentor always tells me, you've got to get your ask in gear. Ask is what I said, <laughs> you know, because a lot of people would have been very intimidated after reading an article by a senior contributor to Forbes and been too afraid to take that next step. And they would have missed out on the opportunity of a friendship, of learning from someone, you know, a possible mentor, whatever that opportunity may be. So, you know, when I read your article, I was like, oh, I've got to talk to this guy. 
I've got to talk to this guy. And so I did. I reached out to you over LinkedIn. That's the power of LinkedIn. And I do believe that because I mentioned that article and told you the purpose of my research, that's why you decided to respond to me. I mean, it was a very purposeful ask, I believe. Oh, no, totally. And that, I will tell you honestly, I mean, I, I get a lot of people who will ping me after, especially after they read, you know, one of my Forbes articles or a book or something. And when they come and they say, hey, yeah, I'm so-and-so and I'm working on this and this piece, this thing that you wrote about, if like for me in particular, it's if there is a content hook in there that I can gravitate to and go, oh yeah, they actually read the piece and they had an interesting question about it or an interesting thought or some observation, then that is so much more likely to catch my attention and make me go, oh, well, I've got to talk to this person because clearly they're super smart and I'm always on the lookout for more smart people to talk to. And so when somebody smart reaches out and goes, yeah, you know what? This is the piece I'm looking at with regard to like, you know, the encoding effect or whatever it is, it, you know, in that Forbes article in particular, but whatever that thing is, yeah, that's the thing. Well, of course you're going to attract my response. And because it's like, who doesn't want to talk to smart people out in the world? But so many people will send the thing like, hey, yeah, I see you write for Forbes and boy, it'd be great to, you know, chat. Well, yeah, write about a lot of things for Forbes. Like, you know, pick one. Yeah, at least tell me you read one of them. So, and I love that, and I so appreciate, and I and I have to give a shout out to Dr. Wayne Baker for writing the book about how to formulate your ask and sharing that so that you get that response. And I think that's so important. So, if you've not read Dr. Wayne Baker's book. It's called something ask or ask something. Sorry, guys, but just Google Dr. Wayne Baker and it'll pop up. It's a fabulous read. And he's actually been on the podcast too, if you want to check that out. So, um, so I want to talk about why I found you, which was the power of writing things down, specifically your goals. And I know you've done a lot of research around that. So can you tell us a little bit about why we need to write stuff down? Yeah, so there's an interesting couple of phenomena that happen when you actually write down a goal. One is the encoding effect and one is the generation. So the encoding effect is basically, this is not just applied to goals, this applies to anything. Basically, when you write stuff down, you are creating a second mechanism in your brain. So when you you listen to it and people say, well, I'm an auditory learner, or, you know, I only listen to, I only learn this way, or I learn visually, or whatever. Honestly, it doesn't matter. Because when you write stuff down, what happens is that, yeah, you have it in your brain, but when you take that extra step, you're basically, it's almost like cementing it a second time in your memory. And so when you write it down, you're basically telling your brain, this thing is super important because how much stuff do I actually write down during the day? So when I write it down, it's like you're putting a star next to it and saying, this is really important. The second phenomenon is what's known as the generation effect. And that is essentially when you write it down, you're actually creating a new memory of it in your brain so that it sticks even further. So yeah, you had the original thought, like, I need to have a goal of making 10 sales calls a day. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Great. Now you write it down, and then it puts a star next to it in your brain that says, make 10 sales calls a day. But then 
there's another phenomenon that when you write it down, it's now saying, you know what? I need to write, I need to make 10 sales calls a day. This is like a whole new separate thought because now it's starting to say, the reason I need to make 10 sales calls a day is because this is what's going to get me to that trip to Jamaica or whatever big goal I want to achieve. And so it's the encoding effect kind of puts a star next to it in your brain and then the generation effect sinks it deeper into your brain. So every time you write something down, basically your brain is working twice as hard to stick that thing in there and make it say this out of the million things that will occur to you today because there's a million of them, your phone, your computer, your kids talking to you, your spouse, whatever it is, there's a million things that are gonna invade your attention today. But when you write it down, and again, think about it. how often do you write stuff down during the day? Probably not very often. So when you do it, it has a huge impact. And I, you know, it's funny because I tell this to my kids, uh, I, you know, my daughter's 17, my son's 14. So he's got, college is a few years away from him. Uh, but my daughter will be off to college next year. And what the studies have found is that overwhelmingly, kids who take actual pen and paper notes in class, their grades are 10 to 20% higher than the people that don't take paper notes in class. Partly because it forces you to pay attention, of course, but also because it's cementing this stuff in your brain, which makes it less time to study for the final, and voila, you get better grades. And all of that applies to goal setting almost one-to-one. That is so interesting that it you've actually done studies or you've read studies that say that it's it actually impacts the students 10 to 20% more on their grades. That's crazy. It's, it's honest to goodness, it's one of the biggest life hacks for, you know, somebody my age, you know, clearly I've got the gray hair, I've got teenagers, uh, but anybody of my age or above who's got kids that are especially heading off to college where you can't really keep track of them in yeah. the same way that you could when they were in high school, middle school and all that, is teaching them that you can cement this stuff in your brain and make studying so much easier if you just are willing to exert an ounce of effort and write stuff down in the class, like it's neurologically, yeah. this is going to help you ace this class simply because you're not gonna have to work as hard to recall it. And you know, when it comes to goal setting, of course, the more prominent the goal is in your brain, the more it's going to drive your behavior, which means that when you're facing that battle between skinny jeans and chocolate cake, the skinny jeans are gonna win out if you've actually written it down and it is prominent in your prefrontal cortex. If it's up here in your brain and this is dominating and saying to the chocolate cake, hey, not today, I don't care as much about you today because this is bigger, well then the skinny jeans are gonna win out. That's a great analogy, I love that. And I think that, you know, one thing that I've done and I, I'm gonna just drop, drop this here and then we'll move on to the other topics because we really wanna, you know, give our job seekers some tips too on what, we're, what you've got to offer them. But, you know, one thing I've always done in my recruiting career is I keep a notebook right beside me while I'm on the phone and I'm so like OCD, like I write down the time, the exact time that I talk to the person and then I write down the conversation while I'm talking to them. And I have done that for eight years. And I have a lot of notebooks. So, because I can't get rid of them. I don't know what's wrong with me. 
So it's no, it's honestly, it's one of the best things you can do. Uh, and not only is it great for all the reasons we just talked about, but there's one other thing, and that is one of the dangers when a hiring manager in a corporation calls up HR and they say, I had an interview a couple of weeks ago, last week, week before, I don't really remember. Um, it was this uh, woman in a blue dress. Um, you know, what is she? I mean, I, she's, you know, kind of stacked up here and I, I you know, I mean, I, I don't want to say too much, but you know, kind of and I, oh my God, when hiring men and they honest to God do this all the time because they do not take notes. They have no reference date. Where did this occur on my calendar? What time of day with it? Was it what happened before it? What after app happened after it? Now all of a sudden they call the HR department with some, you know, ridiculously sexist characteristics about what this person looked like, using all sorts of adjectives that are beyond illegal. And now all of a sudden you've got yourself into a hiring nightmare. Why? Because you didn't want to take notes, because you got too lazy that day and you didn't want to pull out the notebook, but now all of a sudden you're gonna call HR and say, hey, I interviewed that woman with the big breasts in the blue dress. Are you kidding me? And again, I wouldn't say this if it wasn't true and real because it's a terrible thing, but it happens constantly. And it happens because people don't write down, here's who I talked to, here were the salient features of this interview. Here were the big things they talked about, the, the key attributes they had when they came and applied here. Well, what are you going to fall back on? What they look like. Yeah. You may as well handwrite the wrongful termination suit or the hiring discrimination lawsuit right at the same time you call HR, because that's about what has just happened. That sounds like that actually happened and that you had to deal with that at some point. <laughs> we we very much did. And I, I will tell you, it's I've heard the blue dress thing at least a dozen times. And it's not always blue. Sometimes it's red or black, but blue seems to be the most common one. And I, but again, I, I hear this constantly because people don't take anything resembling notes on, on real hiring characteristics. And so what they resort to is patently sexist and illegal things, uh, just, you know, absolutely discriminatory things when they start to go back and go, oh yeah, let's hire that one. What one? <laughs> Based on what? Right. <laughs> it is a nightmare. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about, okay, so we've hired the woman in the blue dress now, and your research has shown that when more than 45% of new hires fail within the first 18 months, why is this and how can it be prevented? Yeah, so this whole thing began, uh, long before I wrote the book, Hiring for Attitude, we did this study. And we basically just took 5,200 hiring managers and we said, all right, I just want to track them and see what their hiring success rate is. Like, uh, simple enough, right? Like, it's not earth shattering. Just track 52 hiring managers and see how many of their hires actually work out. Okay, so they collectively hired over 20,000 people. And all we did was say, who worked out, who didn't? What we found, 46% failed within the first 18 months. We looked at that and said, all right, well, you know, that's not super interesting because it's we've kind of known that hiring is a coin flip for a long time. And Peter Drucker, the you know late, great 
God King of all management gurus did this 20 years ago and found that 66% of new hires failed. So this wasn't earth shattering. So we got the idea, we looked at this and said, this is kind of a boring study. So we went back and said, why did your new hires fail? And that's when this got interesting. So we went back to every hiring manager who hired a failed hire. And we said, why did your new hires fail? And 89% of the time, when somebody failed, it was for attitudinal reasons, not for a lack of skills. That is, it was things like coachability and emotional intelligence and temperament and motivation. And rarely was it the case that somebody couldn't code in Java or somebody couldn't calculate a weighted average cost of capital or somebody couldn't work a fetal monitor or whatever technical skill you needed them to do. And the reason was that Companies are actually pretty good at figuring out if somebody has technical skills. Like if I want to hire a Java programmer, shame on me if I don't hire somebody that actually knows how to code in Java. Because even though I'm not a Java coder, I can download a test from the internet. It's not that hard to figure out. But figuring out if somebody is coachable or has emotional intelligence, well, now that is a slightly different story. And so that was the big aha was that it's not that, you know, even though I wrote the book Hiring for Attitude, I'm not going to ever tell somebody, don't hire people who are skilled. Of course you want people who are skilled. You just also want people who are coachable, emotionally intelligent, are motivated, have the right temperament to fit your company. Uh, yeah, you just want to add to the skills all of these other pieces. So if I'm in the middle of an interview with a candidate, how can I tell what kind of attitude they have? What questions, what, what, what are your recommendations there? So partly it depends on what attitude you're trying to hire for. But let me get super practical here and let me give you a couple of specific things. Let's say, for example, that I want somebody that can handle tough feedback. I want somebody who's resilient, that isn't going to crack under pressure. All right. So what I have to do is I have to ask myself, when do people tend to crack under pressure in my company? Well, maybe they get tough feedback. Maybe they a customer gets a little terse with them. Maybe they dealt with a difficult colleague. Maybe they had a they fell behind on a deadline. Maybe they were given a deadline that was just absolutely impossible. Maybe they were given a task that they had no idea how to complete. Okay, all of those would be perfectly fine scenarios. All I have to do is take the words, could you tell me about a time you faced blah, blah, blah. Could you tell me about a time you got tough feedback from a boss? Could you tell me about a time you worked with a difficult customer? Could you tell me about a time you were asked to do something you didn't know how to do? Could you tell me about a time you were given an impossible deadline? Could you tell me about a time you were asked to participate in a change for new technology you had never seen before? Honestly, it doesn't matter what follows the words, could you tell me about a time you faced, blah, blah, blah. And all you're really doing is taking those attitudes that are most important to you. And you just have to ask yourself, when do these attitudes actually show up in real life? So for example, I will get companies come to me all the time and say, we want people that have integrity. Super, that's awesome. That sounds lovely. I have no idea what that means. 
well, you know, they're they're honest and truthful. Cool. Um, when do you have people that aren't honest and truthful? Well, I, I we don't really have those. Oh, then why are we making this a priority in our interviews? I, I know it sounds lovely. However, I don't know why we care about it in an interview. But when I ask a CEO, for example, give me an example of somebody who you think has a terrible attitude. Oh, Bob is, Bob's awful. Okay, what does Bob specifically do? Bob resists every change we try and implement. Every single time we try and implement a new process, new technology, Bob is telling us why it won't work. Okay, that's easy to fix. Now all I have to do is ask, could you tell me about a time you were asked to implement a change you didn't think was going to work? Now I can reveal every potential Bob in every interview I'm going to conduct. And all I did was ask, could you tell me about a time you faced this exact scenario that my employees face in real life all the time? And they're going to reveal to you, as long as you don't give away the right answer in your interview question and ask something like, could you tell me about a time you were given a difficult assignment and how did you overcome that? I don't want to know when they overcame it. I want to know when they faced that situation because some people, problem solvers, are going to automatically tell me how they overcame it. Problem bringers are going to tell me about how terrible it was and awful it was. So as long as I just stick to my script and pick a couple of attitudes, and I'm talking three to five, not 15, not 20, because there A, there are not 20 attitudes that really differentiate high and low performance in, a, in the real world, and B, in, in any given company, and B, in an hour-long interview, you don't have time to go through 20 attitudes. I'm married to a clinical psychologist and she doesn't have time over a month of therapy to go through 20 different dimensions. You have to triage this just like a physician would triage. Yeah, okay, you got a gunshot wound and a sprained ankle. Yeah, I think I'm gonna deal with a gunshot wound right now and uh, we'll be with a sprained ankle you know, next week. That's not our top priority right now. And the same thing applies to hiring. So when you're hiring and in the middle of an interview, what would you say, oh my gosh, that's a red flag right there? So there's a number of things that really stand out for what makes a red flag during an interview. Let me give you a couple because there are some biggies. So one would be, if I ask a candidate the question, could you Tell me about a time you got tough feedback from a boss. Okay, simple question. It's a ridiculously powerful question, by the way, but simple question. If somebody says to me, well, you know, what you should do when you get tough feedback is you should really process it on your own time and think thoughtfully about it. And then what you should do is come back the next week and, and really tell the boss everything you learned about it and really make an attempt to grow from this. Huh. Now, that candidate did not tell me anything about what they actually did. I asked them specifically, could you, Mark or Casey, tell me about a time when you faced this situation? And what did they say? 
hypothetically, what one ought to do is one ought to pursue the following course of action. Well, now, one of the things we discovered by analyzing over now 40,000 interview answers, high performer interview answers, they use first person pronouns and past tense verbs. That is, they say the words, I, me, had a time in the past when I did the following. Low performer answers are like 400% more likely to use second person pronouns, which is you or third person pronouns, he, she, they. So they're more likely to say, well, what you should do in a case like this is you should do the following. And they use 200% plus more present and future tense verbs. So I, that, that's super technical, but what it boils down to is saying, high performers often say, I did. Low performers often say, you should. And one of the biggest red flags is just simply listening for, forget how nice the answer sounds. Because a, uh, a lot of bad candidates are really articulate. And so you got to set aside how beautifully they speak and instead focus on, did they actually answer my question? Did they actually say, I did, and here's specifically what I did? Or did they take a very specific question and give me a hypothetical answer with second person pronouns and present and future tense verbs? That is so interesting, you know, and, and the fact that y'all linked that to high performers and low performers, I have never heard that before. And I'm like, this is, I'm gonna be like focusing on this now that you've brought that to my attention. So that is so there, interesting. So I there, wanted- There's actually a, I was just gonna say, there's actually a book that we got the idea from. We didn't create this idea. There's a book by a psychologist named James Pennebaker. So this is just, you know, complete random aside. Uh, but a book by a psychologist named James Pennebaker called The Secret Life of Pronouns. And he actually pioneered the use of linguistic analysis to identify mental health disorders. And so in his book, which is just crazy fun, he actually goes through like Beatles lyrics and charts through the use of the pronouns that the Beatles used during their, you know, two-decade career and starts to show evidence of John Lennon's depression simply by virtue of the change in language he makes. And so uh, James Pennebaker is just a giant in the world of trauma therapy. We looked at this, talked to James and said, oh, that is, that is a gold mine for hiring. We're just gonna take his, so we basically worked with him, took his technology his linguistic analysis and said, let's just apply that same psychological dissection to hiring. And I mean, the guy's a genius, And uh, but it's a super fun read. The book's maybe 10 years old now, uh, but it really speaks to the power of how our words reflect our personalities. And if you're in the hiring business, boy, this is, this is every bit as crucial as it is for a clinical psychologist. Oh, I am so going to the bookstore after I get done here because I'm getting, so the secret life of pronouns. Yes. Yep. 
Perfect. Okay, so you recently, and I've got a couple more questions before we have to wrap up our time, but you recently um, published an article in Forbes, because that's what you do, called Leaders Desperately Need Training on These Three Issues to Succeed for the Rest of 2021. And one of those skills is to learn to deliver more effective and um, less emotional feedback. And you mentioned a method in there, and I believe it's called the FIRE model. So how does that help? you know, managers to give back that better feedback? Yeah, so the FIRE model is essentially this. In every conversation, there are really four layers to a conversation. There's facts, which is the F part of it. There's some objective reality. So somebody did something wrong. Okay, that's a fact. We can observe it, videotape it, audio tape it, whatever. Based on that, we make an interpretation. Like, why did this person make this mistake? That's the I part of it. Based on our interpretation, we then have an emotional reaction, that's the R, and then based on that emotional reaction, we have a desired end, something we want to happen, E. Now, so simple example would be, uh, let's say an employee screws up something in a report. Let's just say, you know, giving my little office space uh, nod here, TPS reports. They mess up their TPS reports. Okay, that's the fact. They messed it up. Now, our interpretation is, well, they messed it up because they don't care about this job. They don't care about this company. They're not emotionally invested in our work. My emotional reaction to that, given that I am emotionally invested in our company and I want to see it succeed, my emotional reaction is I'm annoyed. I'm irritated. I'm disappointed. And based on that, emotional reaction, I now want them to come in and work all weekend. And I also want them to apologize to me for having messed up their work. Okay. Now, here's the problem. All of that's a natural, normal human reaction. It's how the brain processes information. We see something, we feel something, we see something, we think something, we feel something, and we want something. Okay. That, that's basic, you know, neurology 101. However, when we go to that employee and we say, I think you messed this up because you don't care about the company and I'm feeling really annoyed with your performance right now. Well, the minute we start using feeling words, what is that employee's reaction to us going to be? Well, I don't know why you're coming down so hard on me. It feels like you're singling me out. It feels like that you just don't like me. Well, I'm not saying I don't like you. I actually... I actually feel like you could be really good here, but I want to see more from you. But yeah, why are you talking to me in such a nasty, angry way? Well, now all of a sudden, what has happened? We're having a conversation about our feelings. What are we not talking about? We're not talking about the TPS reports, which was probably a super simple fix. If instead we had gone to the employee and just simply said, you know what? I'm going to write down. Going back to the writing down. I'm going to write down everything I want to say to this employee. You messed up the TPS report. You didn't fill out three of the forms. Okay. Based on that, my interpretation is that you don't care enough about the company. My emotional reaction is that I'm annoyed and irritated. My desired end is that I want you to apologize to me. And I'm just going to cross out the I, the R, and the E. And all I'm going to do is walk up to you and say, hey, I noticed that there were three missing fields in the TPS reports. Well, now, what is the employee's response going to be? Oh, I'm so sorry about that. I messed that up. Let me go fix that. I'm going to jump on that immediately. 
Because what we just did is we took out all of the emotion, the judgment, the interpretation, the accusation out of this conversation. And what we're left with is there were just three missing fields in the TPS report. And nine times out of 10, what happens in fights, conversations, constructive feedback, whatever, at the office, but also this applies at home, is that we, we do this with our spouses, with our kids, like, why did you show up late? And you, I told you, you had to be here at such and such time. Most of the time, what really gets us annoyed is our interpretation of why they did that. It's not the actual thing they did. And so not only is this make the conversation just painful and, and horrible and emotional, but it also, as soon as emotions get involved, I always ask leaders when I'm training them, where are you smarter? When you're super emotional or when you're more calm and analytical? Well, of course, I'm smarter when I'm more calm and analytical. Yeah, like every other being on the planet, right? So I want to, when I'm giving you feedback and giving you some, you know, constructive, do this better, I want to put you in a place where you are calm and rational and analytical. And to do that, I need to strip out every bit of emotion and interpretation and desire to end out of this and simply come up to you and say, hey, I noticed that there were some missing fields on the TPS reports. What do you think about that? Ah, let me go fix that immediately. That's how we keep conversations calm. And the other thing I will say is that in this world in particular, when everybody is already emotionally keyed up, um, a psychologist friend of mine describes it as when your stress bucket is already full. So imagine a bucket of water and that's your, the water is your stress. And when your stress bucket is already full, it only takes a shot glass of water to make that bucket overflow. When your stress bucket is empty, you could fill it with jugs upon jugs upon jugs of water. You're going to be fine. Right now in today's world, everybody's stress bucket is pretty darn full. And so it takes very little to push them over the edge. And so one of the things that I encourage everybody to do when you're having fraught conversations, having difficult conversations, is just strip the emotions out of them so that it becomes calm and rational because everybody's already keyed up. Keep it calm. Use the prefrontal cortex. Use the front part of your brain, not the lizard brain, not this thing back here, which is, you know, the early evolutionary system. This is all the, you know, sex and bite and flight and all that stuff. It's get rid of this. Don't work here. Work up here. This is calm and rational and analytical. Live here and you're going to be in a lot better shape. You know, so much that you just said there that I want to comment on and we're almost out of time and I want to ask this last question, but I do want to tell people that I love Mel Robbins technique for getting you, as you said, out of your lizard brain and into your prefrontal cortex. And it's so simple, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with the five second rule and it's basically, and you have to count down because you have to have an endpoint. But when something's going on and you need a moment, if you do five, four, three, two, one, you don't even have to do it out loud, do it in your head and put an action at the one at the end of it. You will switch your brain 
to where you're operating in that analytical space rather than from the fight or flight. So I love that so much. And the only other thing I wanted to add to that is when you're talking about interpretations, you know, I'm a coach, I coach clients all the time. And the one thing that I really try to show them is that how they're interpreting the world around them, how they perceive it absolutely creates their reality. And so that first scenario that you gave where, you know, he doesn't care for the company, that that's a perception, right? And you get to choose what perception you view that situation through. So I just really wanted to just kind of hone that in and just let people know you're really at choice. You get to create your own reality through your perceptions and through your interpretations. So that's great. Um, so I am not gonna be able to ask you all the questions I want to, but I've gotta ask you this one. So your company did a study on our smart goals dumb. And I would love, and, and you discovered that, you know, smart goals might actually be impeding the high performers. So talk to me just as quickly as you can a little bit about what you found and how this could help our job seekers and our employed candidates. So the bottom line was this, smart goals, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, timely. Okay. Specific, measurable, time limited. Those are fine. Uh, We've got to do this without putting up the wrong fingers. Achievable <laughs> and realistic. Those were the two. Numbers one, two, three, and four. Those were the ones that were the most problematic. And here's what it boils down to. Um, CEOs do not set achievable and realistic goals. CEOs were taught long ago to set big, hairy, audacious goals. hacks. <laughs> we call them hard goals. And they are goals that are going to push you out of your comfort zone. Why? Because the greatest achievements in human history, whether it's CEOs, Olympic athletes, inventors, entrepreneurs, whatever, pick your poison here, um, they always look to push the boundaries of what people told them they couldn't do. The problem with SMART goals is that they were created in the 1950s in a command and control era. Ike Eisenhower was president, you know, very militaristic, command and control, don't color outside the lines, stay within your little role. And the problem is that we set SMART goals for employees and say, well, do something that you can actually achieve this year. And yet, if you go and ask every single employee, I want you to tell me the single biggest achievement you've had in your life. I don't care what it is. Tell me what that thing is. Maybe you ran a marathon. Maybe you quit smoking. Maybe you lost 20 pounds. Maybe you nursed a sick child back to health. Maybe you put yourself through college. Maybe you got that big promotion. Maybe you started your own company. I don't care. It doesn't matter. And then ask them, was that goal that you achieved, that goal that still gives you pride to this day, was it inside your comfort zone or outside your comfort zone? Did you know everything when you started? Did you have to learn a lot along the way? Was it easy or was it hard? Every single time, what you will find is that every person's greatest accomplishment, the ones that actually they care about and still feel pride for, are outside of their comfort zone, had to learn a lot of skills. They were difficult. It was uh, even emotionally a little challenging, like a little anxiety producing at times. That's what goals actually look like. And so in corporation, and that's the goals that CEOs set, by the way. When Steve Jobs said the purpose of Apple is to make a little dent in the universe, he wasn't saying, oh, let me stay within my comfort zone. His exact phrase was, we want people at Apple who want to make a little dent in the universe. 
Most people don't know he said that in a Playboy magazine interview. Uh, but <laughs> that's, that's when it occurred. Uh, it's really hard to find, by the way. We had to dig for a month to find the exact quote. But you get the gist. This was not a guy who said, you know, yeah, we want to, you know, do the easy path. Elon Musk said starting an electric car company, and the exact quote is, it is idiocy square. Starting a car company and then on top of it making it electric, you'd have to be nuts to go after this goal. And yet what you see is that every great achievement involved, whether you push yourself 80% outside your comfort zone or just 10% outside your comfort zone, every great goal involved going outside your comfort zone. And so my biggest beef and what our research has found is that when you tell people, make sure your goal is achievable, make sure it's realistic, don't push too hard. What you're basically saying is it's okay to be mediocre. It's okay to not challenge yourself and grow and learn. That's totally fine. Even though our CEO thinks a goal like that is stupid because they would never set a goal like that, it's okay for you. What a colossally hypocritical and terrible demotivating message to send to especially high performers in the company. If you don't push, not only do you not have to push, we don't want you to push. And all I'm saying is, listen, if somebody really doesn't want to push, okay, I, they're not my number one concern. My number one concern is the people who want to push and be great, but who are being told because it doesn't fit neatly on their smart goal form, don't push. And that is the essence of the problem here. That, and you know, and once you said that, because I, I always set a stretch goal. You know, I set as I set a goal and then I set a stretch goal on top of it just so because I know that if I, I'm competitive enough that I'll hit that goal and I'll probably hit the stretch goal too, just because I wrote it down. I had to write it down, so I gotta do it, right? My brain's not gonna let me not do it. So I love that you shared that and we kind of brought that to the to wrap up the show, I think that that's perfect conclusion, starting with the writing, talking about how we're going to help these people and their roles, and then, you know, wrapping it up with smart goals, because that applies to everything in life. So, but before I let you go, we do have our three VIP questions for you. So are you ready? I, I am. Okay. So we were just talking about Elon Musk, but if you were chosen to be one of the first colonists on Mars, what three things or people would you bring with you? So I'm going to be honest here. I, I absolutely hated this question, not because of the question itself, but because I spent 20 minutes in this. So I was a philosophy major as an undergrad. And so my natural first knee-jerk response was, okay, well, three people are things. Well, three people. I have a wife, daughter, and a son. Okay. Those are my three people. But then I started to think about it. Well, what if are we the only three people on Mars? Because then what are my children going to do if they decide that they're not asexual and want to pursue a romantic relationship? Who's going to be with them? Each other? Well, that's, that's kind of creepy. And then I go, well, well, then how are they going to like propagate the species? Well, that's, that's not going to be so good either. And then I think, well, okay, well then set that aside. Maybe I'll leave them on earth. But then I go, well, now I'm just a abandoning my children. And so I, I went down this kind of ethical moral rabbit hole with this question. And so the long and short of it is, um, 
I don't have a good answer for you because my knee-jerk response was wife, daughter, son in, you know, chronological order. But then I'm like, my gosh, this is, this is not an easy question. Like, and so I'm like, well, okay, I'll just bring three books and call it a day. I don't know what else to say because I, I literally spent 20 you. minutes. One, one night I, I'm lying in bed and I'm like, this is, this is twisted. Like, how am I going to answer this question? <laughs> I'm like, what am I going to do with my children? Like, how do we propagate a species? You can't bring your own family and have like no other genetic input into the, you know, starting a new species. I'm like, can we at least make the number six or something? And so uh, it's, it's a much longer answer than I'm sure you wanted, uh, but it's, it prompted some thought. Obviously, maybe a bit of a nervous breakdown. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, we'll move on to the next question. I bet you have an answer for this one. So what is one thing you do each morning to set your day up for success? This one was actually easy, and I love this question. Okay. So the number one thing, and this actually comes out of one of our studies, I do not check my email. I do not uh, open my computer. What I do is I get a cup of coffee, I sit down with a pen and paper with a notebook, and I ask myself one question. What are the one or two things I need to accomplish today for this to have been a successful day? And we did a study on this. And what we found is that when people answer that question, A, they end up being able to accomplish those things throughout the day because your to-do list is not the same thing as a success list. And so they achieve their success list. But then, and this is, is something what's known as the Zygarnik effect. So this comes out of the 1920s, a psychologist by the name Bluma Zygarnik. And what Bluma found was that when you have an unfinished task, it creates a psychological tension in your brain that actually dampens your mood and makes it harder for you to sleep. And so when you can finish the day and go, you know what? I still got 30 items on my to-do list. I don't care because I got done those two things that I said were most important to accomplish today. You actually sleep better and then you wake up in the morning and guess what? You're not thinking about all the things you didn't get done from yesterday. So that's my that's my one thing. And I, I wouldn't have answered that, you know, 10 years ago, but it was a study we did that led me to start doing that for myself. You know, that's part of my journaling that I do every day. And I don't ask myself that exact question, but I, I guess in a way I do because I have my big three that, mm -hmm. and I feel like if I get those big three done and they're usually related to my goals, then yep. mission accomplished for the day. So I totally get it. Okay. Final question. If your life's work was being summarized in a news article, what would the headline be? So... I, again, came up with 30 different variations, but I guess at the heart of it, um, my life's work has really been use data to be smarter as a leader. And that's that's really it. Just get rid of all the conjecture and all of the guruship. And and I mean, listen, I've, I've made my living being a guru and whatever, but the truth of it is that ultimately what I want is for people to be smarter about this, pay attention to the science. And I try not to let my personal opinions, because uh, I've been wrong. I have personal ideas and thoughts and philosophies that are just stupid. 
They are just not borne out by the data. And the being willing to admit that the idea you had was 100% incorrect, I think is one of the greatest gifts a person can have. And so my real focus through my life and career has been just use it, look at the data, look at what the numbers are telling you. And if you have better ideas about how to get those numbers or things that were missing in the numbers, well then, by all means, go for it. Keep pushing the envelope. But ultimately, don't rely on what you think ought to be the case. Look at what actually is the case and go from there. That's beautiful. How do people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, the easiest way is to go to leadershipiq.com. That's the primary place. And you can find links to my Forbes articles there. And of course, you can also find all of the articles I write at Forbes at I think it's Forbes.com slash sites slash Mark Murphy. So they they capture, I think I've written 300 articles for them. So I think they're all there. But leadershipiq.com is honestly the easier site to remember. Absolutely. And I'm signed up so that anytime you publish anything, I get a little rings the bell for me. So awesome. yeah, awesome. I enjoy it. So. Well, this has been a fascinating and much um, anticipated conversation. So thank you so much for your time today. And I just have one last oh. thing to say to you. You are a VIP. Thank you so much. I, this has been an absolute delight. And honestly, since you and I first started talking, when you first reached out, it's been, it's just been a privilege. And so uh, I, I was thrilled to be on here today. So thank you for having me. And that's a wrap for today. Join us next week here on the We Are VIP podcast. We'd love to know how we can help you be a VIP. To find out more, log on to wearevip.com.